Coming up in this episode, ISIS is on the run and its so-called caliphate is in serious decline and it may be wiped out soon. So it's urging its followers to go out and harm people in any way they can using the simplest of methods. But in this edition, we learn about another concern. Our concern, however, lies with the ability that ISIS has had to develop rather high-tech capabilities. I mean, drone technologies, um, obviously we know that they've been researching with chemical weapons uh, in Syria in particular, uh, and use of, of, of chemical weapons. So this is not a group that I think we can count on to go low-tech, you know, with the rock attacks or the hammer attacks or the knife attacks, as, as alarming as those are. This is a group that's committed to actual technological innovation. And Justin Sibarel, the acting coordinator for counterterrorism at the State Department's Bureau of Counterterrorism says trying to follow all of the possible returning foreign fighters is a hard thing to do. If you had to follow 24-7 uh, every individual that may be a risk, that would tax uh, security agencies maybe beyond what they can perform. But in the latest edition of its country reports on terrorism, there's some good news too. We've got the details coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The State Department's Bureau of Counterterrorism and Countering Violent Extremism has released its latest report on terrorism. The news is good and bad. Acting Coordinator Justin Sibrell gave Target USA the most engaging and forthcoming assessment on terrorism to date. ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, Hezbollah, and other terrorist organizations are all using technology to elevate their aptitudes to plan and execute sophisticated attacks and at the same time incite sympathizers worldwide to follow them. He gave us some brilliant insight on the latest changes. Our first question was, what's the main takeaway? I would say the principal takeaway is that um, uh, we continue to live in a very, uh, in a world in which we face a very dynamic and evolving terrorism threat um, that is more global than it has ever been, and that therefore requires um, of us in the international community a new commitment to and increased levels of international cooperation to address it. I think we saw some pretty good signs in 2016 evidence of that increased cooperation, whether it be in the efforts of the 73-member Defeat ISIS coalition, which is helping the Iraqi forces and partner forces in Syria bring to bear real military pressure upon ISIS core, but also in improved cooperation in limiting and uh, trying to prevent terrorist travel, facilitation, financing. I think that, you know, the, the rise of ISIS, which is 
uh, in the 2013-2014 period, we're still living through that phenomenon. We are, as an international community, still trying to improve our own processes directly related to that specific threat. I would say that's the dominant theme and the dominant observation. At the same time, we still face a, a resilient al-Qaeda threat. Um, that is, uh, has not gone away, uh, that in certain parts of the world remains a very significant concern to U.S. security and to our partners' security. And then, of course, we still face the phenomenon of state sponsorship of terrorism, organ states that actually use terrorism as part of their uh, foreign policy objectives, and Iran is the leading state sponsor of terrorism. Mm -hmm. So if I could break down a couple of things. Um, you mentioned that there were some good signs um, can you just give us some examples of what those good signs are? Well, I'll start with the Defeat ISIS coalition, which has been built over the last couple of years, a coalition of countries that have come together to assist uh, our partners in Iraq uh, and our partners on the ground in Syria to uh, deal with the threat of ISIS. And this coalition not only provides support militarily for that effort, but has been instrumental in generating uh, increased support for humanitarian assistance and stabilization assistance uh, to uh, assist, uh, in particular, in Iraq for those people who have been displaced uh, as a result of the ISIS occupation of their territory and then having been pushed out of those, of those areas, uh, this humanitarian and stabilization support that's been really galvanized through that coalition has uh, been instrumental in helping to uh, repair people's lives in a very, very difficult uh, situation. That's a specific example with the, the Defeat ISIS coalition. I would say more broadly in the international community, there is um, an understanding, and this relates, of course, to the phenomenon we've seen over the last couple of years of directed and inspired attacks uh, by groups like ISIS uh, around the world, to include Europe, Southeast Asia, uh, even in the United States, there have been attacks that people have attributed to or have themselves uh, said are uh, inspired by by groups like ISIS. There's an understanding that this is a global threat, so therefore we need to be doing more to share information with one another, to increase the capabilities of organizations like Interpol or Europol, and there's a new commitment to that. So I would say those are two very, very good examples of enhanced international uh, cooperation against the threat. You said that uh, al-Qaeda in your main takeaways is resilient. What signs are you seeing of that? Well, um, I think that, you know, they uh, have um, maintained uh, there was a time, uh, if you think, J.J., back to a couple of years ago, when there was a question, well, with the rise of ISIS, does that mean al-Qaeda goes away? And here we are a couple of years later, and I think that the answer to that question is pretty firmly uh, uh, provided. They have not gone away. They're not going away. They understand uh, – they're, they're, they're an organization that understands how to operate at a very local level, yet still ascribe to the global ambitions uh, that uh, go back to Osama bin Laden and, and Zawahiri himself. So this is an organization that does tailor itself to a local environment, and we see them in Syria, we see them in Yemen, of course, see them in places in North Africa and across the Sahel, um, and of course continued in the Afghanistan-Pakistan border areas. So they, they are an adaptable organization that has uh, not gone away. If anything, they're using this present moment to sort of rebuild, and this is something that uh, many of us in the international and in, in the national security community are looking closely at. Do you see any capability at this this point for them to to launch uh, international attacks like what was launched in uh, on 9/11, do you see them with that capability at this point, or are they marching towards that? Well, I think the global, the ambition for global attacks remains, and I think that's part of Al Qaeda's um, objective. 
um, the work that's been done in the United States since 9-11 to strengthen homeland defenses, uh, I think, is uh, um, it's pretty clear that we uh, believe that we're not, we're not we, we are we, we can disrupt those kinds of sophisticated complex attacks like the 9/11 attacks but that doesn't mean that groups can't carry off um, you know uh, uh, localized attacks in various parts of the world that do give a sense of relevancy and this is what these groups do they may have moved away from the sophisticated complex attacks like we saw in 9/11 mm-hmm. but they still have had strategic effect from the attacks they do conduct. You've spoken at length about ISIS and the Defeat ISIS Coalition, and we've heard a lot about them, and we've seen a lot of evidence that this so-called caliphate of theirs is crumbling day by day. And um, I I kind of wonder, um, what do you expect next from them? Do you expect them to go to some place and try to set up one big shop, or do they kind of just disperse like a, a nest of angry hornets now? Well, I think there would be perhaps others uh, in the in the analytical community who could do uh, maybe a better job answering this. My my view is that they will, uh, uh, um, in different places, take on um, a different uh, complexion. So what I mean by that is, in Iraq, I think that the core of uh, Al Qaeda is Al Qaeda of ISIS is Al Qaeda in Iraq. They will go back to the um, uh, uh, practices and. Uh, strategy that they um, uh, uh, followed prior to the advent and the rise of ISIS uh, in Syria. Uh, And that means that they will um, evolve into a more clandestine organization, that they will uh, attempt to intimidate and uh, um, control um, towns and uh, localities, um, and they will um, uh, conduct attacks, uh, asymmetric attacks, uh, like uh, they had done previously. Now, that's that's in Iraq. I think in other places, I think in, in Europe, uh, there are individuals, there are those who are trying to network um, uh, and will try to remain um, uh, a part of uh, a, an ISIS network in, uh, in, in Europe or different regions, I think you'll see different uh, manifestations. Um, but I don't see them going away, if that's sort of the, the ultimate question you're, you're, you're asking here. One source that I spoke to who spent a lot of years um, sort of out in some of this ungoverned space that you spoke about, chasing organizations like ISIS and, and al-Qaeda, gave me a, a theory about a, a process that they use to uh, essentially extend themselves. And he equated it to a fast food company. Go to a place like uh, the Philippines, find a group like Abu Sayyaf, give them $100,000, tell them in return for that what you need to do is to go, forgive the reference, chop off the heads of some Westerners, make some videos of this, tweet these videos out, give us a cut of, we'll set you up in a town, give us a cut of what you're getting. Does that sound reasonable, viable, even plausible in some of these operating environments where you think they may go? Well, it, it is the case that ISIS is part of its spread and uh, an establishment of global affiliates has, in most cases, um, uh, it's been a two-way process where the pre-existing group itself has pledged allegiance to or pledged to become part of ISIS. As an example, the group uh, Ansar Beit al-Maqdis, which is a terrorist group that operated in the Sinai Peninsula itself, 
pledged its allegiance to ISIS, and then it became known as ISIS-Sinai. Uh, so there are already groups out there, and you gave the example of, of, of the Philippines, who um, uh, are pre-existing groups, have their own localized agenda, but then want to associate themselves with ISIS because of the sort of global brand and the notoriety that ISIS has achieved over the last couple of years. I think the question is, as, the, uh, uh, as ISIS is, is decimated and destroyed within its core area, can no longer claim uh, or lay claim to that uh, um, uh, mantle they previously had of being a caliphate, does the same attraction uh, remain? In other words, are groups around the world going to want to be associated with an organization that, for all intents and purposes, at its core has been destroyed. That's a that's a question for the analytical community. I think, however, it works out, it it will not it will it will uh, not deal with the fact that there remain places around the world where these local groups are able to grow and thrive due to the absence of effective governance or an ability for governments to apply effective security pressure upon them. What about foreign terrorist fighters? They have been a big part of the buildup and the, I wouldn't call it longevity, but certainly the ability for this organization to, 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 to project itself in the last three years since they sort of rose up in June of 2014. Foreign fighters, where do you see them now, in, in, not just in relationship to this group, but in general? Well, you're absolutely right to point out that the foreign terrorist fighter phenomenon has been integral to the rise of ISIS. The foreign terrorist fighters that uh, uh, picked up their lives from wherever they were all around the world, more than 100, 100 countries, uh, uh, individuals have gone off to fight in Syria and Iraq uh, alongside or as part of ISIS. Uh, those individuals brought to that conflict uh, a very hardcore ideology, a commitment to uh, ISIS, and uh, and no real stake in resol resolution to whatever political um, uh, uh, conflict was underway in a place like Syria. Their goal at all times was to fight and to cre to uh, to create this this caliphate. Um, so they were not only an exceptionally committed group of individuals that ISIS could draw upon for its immediate uh, combat necessities, they also formed uh, the core, and this is what we've all been very worried about in the international community, of a potential sort of diaspora uh, terrorist uh, community. And of course, we saw in the 1980s with foreign fighters who went to Afghanistan to fight alongside uh, what became al-Qaeda, uh, this is that becomes sort of the, the, the uh, seedbed for the rise of, of of uh, local terrorist groups globally. So when we saw individuals from all around the world coalescing in Syria and Iraq, that's a very, very alarming prospect. There's been a lot of work done to try to identify who those people are, make sure that governments are sharing information among themselves on identities so that we can prevent those individuals from uh, uh, returning home, um, from moving to other conflicts. Um, and uh, and uh, and uh, and because at at that point they have be they are trained, hardened, networked, uh, committed individuals. Um, so there's a lot of focus on the foreign fighter uh, phenomenon. But I would just say though that the it's been much harder for uh, for and one of the observations we make in the report is that in 2016, ISIS was unable to um, replenish their their uh, numbers of recruits of foreign terrorist fighters through 2016, and that was the result, of course, of of uh, the significant battle.
battlefield losses that uh, uh, ISIS suffered, but also the loss of the uh, access to the Turkish border that occurred in 2016, and then the efforts uh, more broadly in the international community to make it harder for people to, to go and to access the conflict. Um, so there is, um, uh, that's an example where the international community has improved, um, but there's still a long way to go. Uh, and what we're also seeing then is that as a result of that difficulty, individuals are not seeking to go to Syria and Iraq, but they are still uh, convinced by and inspired by the ideology to undertake attacks. So that's where you see the threat of the rise of homegrown violent extremists. Mm -hmm. Individuals who may, if the possibility was there, have at an earlier time tried to go and actually fight in the conflict zone. But as a result of making it more difficult to get there, they look around and, and seek targets uh, uh, nearby. What impact do you see all of this having on the West, specifically the U.S., the, you know, the foreign terrorist fighter phenomenon that we're talking about? Because, as you said, uh, and so eloquently, you know, this whole deal about foreign fighters is not a new thing. It's, it's just a new iteration of a new thing. But what do you feel the impact of this new iteration of this is going to have on the West and the U.S. moving forward? Well, one thing I would just say that is new or was new in Syria and Iraq was it was much more accessible as a conflict than Afghanistan ever was. Um, and uh, that was one of the reasons you had such hard, large numbers and high numbers of foreign terrorist fighters. It was not particularly difficult to get to Syria in 2012, 2013. Uh, it was dangerous, of course, but if you were committed to do so, it was a couple bus rides through Europe, or it was a flight to Turkey, and a couple bus rides, and you would arrive in Syria. So much easier to access. So that was one of the uh, changes and differences that made it a much more d dangerous uh, situation. I think that the issue you're, you're, you're touching upon, which is uh, the homegrown violent extremism issue, is, is one that is, uh, uh, we really have to, to be concerned with and work on, because you essentially are talking about how to discover that somebody is uh, radicalized to the point that they're prepared to undertake violent attacks, and what are your opportunities to uh, intervene in that process and stop that, or as it's detected, to, for law enforcement to, uh, to prevent attacks. It's a very difficult thing. There's a lot of work going on, discussions about how to ensure that at the community level we have uh, the kinds of relationships between communities, community groups, and law enforcement authorities so that there, uh, there's an, 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 an ability to, to detect that process and to prevent it. Um, we will, and, and it's, it's going to be highly localized. What it looks like in the United States is going to be different than what it looks like in Western Europe or looks like in uh, other parts of the world. Uh, it has to be the product of a lot of hard work at the local level uh, on this issue. And I know that's underway in a number of places around the United States in particular, uh, whether it be um, uh, community groups, uh, mayors, um, um, uh, uh, law enforcement, et cetera, who are working together on this very, on this very issue. Mm -hmm. The question that so many people, at least in the, in the, in the security community that I talk to always wrestle with is how to keep up with these people, the homegrown violent extremists and the returning fighters, and they talk about resources, they talk about personnel. One of the things that I've heard is that you simply cannot apply enough people power to physically keep up with them. And I'm wondering, as you look at your report and look through these you know, scenarios and these locations, does that seem to be catching on in terms of 
do the do the do the foreign terrorist fighters know that? Do the groups that are kind of spawning these people, putting them out there, do they seem to know that they can't be essentially followed twenty four seven? Do you get the sense that they are aware of that? Well, I, what I would say is that we can be smarter, and I think need to be smarter about how we identify those who uh, may be uh, uh, a risk. And what I mean by that is, if you look at the attack patterns in, um, um, as an example, in some of the attacks in, in in Europe over the last couple of years, they're returning foreign fighters who link into pre-existing relationships and communities. They're individuals who had known one another as uh, 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 in the prison system. They had previous records of uh, petty crime. Um, people that had actually been on the radar, perhaps, of law enforcement. So looking at those networks, and one of the things we're trying to do more of is to ensure that the counterterrorism community and then the law enforcement community are really communicating. Um, I think in the United States, that's, you know, that's, that, that's going on. That's been happening since the 9-11 since, uh, and the changes that have been made here, but not in every country. You know, you have stovepipes where you have a counterterrorism community that is uh, sort of treated separately from the broader law enforcement or security uh, agencies in a country. So we're working with partners to ensure that those sorts of stovepipes are not there, that are not, that are not limiting um, uh, an ability to see across and to see patterns. And that's what I mean by working smarter. Um, I would agree with you, if you had to follow 24-7 uh, every individual that may be a risk, that would tax uh, security agencies maybe beyond what they could, what they can uh, can can perform. But if we work smart and we and we apply some of the lessons we've learned, I think uh, we can do a better job of that. Technology and terrorists. Stay home. Grab a rock. Grab a knife. Anything you can to essentially attack a Westerner or somebody. That was transmitted via video. And terror groups like ISIS and others, but ISIS certainly in the forefront of this, have become really good at technology. Does your report take any notice of that? I think you know our report certainly addresses the issue on a country-by-country -country basis of the vulnerabilities within the communication system and how terrorists have used and made use of social media networks uh, and then efforts governments have undertaken to try to disrupt uh, or prevent that. Uh, the the report also includes a chapter on uh, preventing terrorist access to WMD and those sorts of weapons technologies. So I think we do address uh, the technology issue in a couple of different um, uh, areas within the report. I would just uh, add that um, although the, the you, you talked about Adnani um, effectively expressing a sort of low-tech um, approach. Our concern, however, lies with the ability that ISIS has had to develop rather high-tech capabilities. I mean, drone technologies. Um, obviously, we know that they've been researching with chemical weapons uh, in Syria in particular, uh, and use of, of, of chemical weapons. So this is not a group that I think we can count on to go low-tech, you know, with the rock attacks or the hammer attacks or the knife attacks, as, as alarming as those are. This is a group that's committed to actual technological innovation, and um, so that's where we really have to be uh, also looking. One quick follow. When you have an organization that does possess the capability to engage in that kind of high-tech activity, they usually have a fairly robust team of technocrats or you know, people that can do research and, 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 and certainly people that can build and provide apparatus that, that feeds it. Do you see them with that capability? 
Well, this is the thing about ISIS. I mean, they deliberately recruited individuals with certain specialized skills and capabilities. Um, uh, probably a majority of those people came from within Iraq and Syria itself, but they have also been highly successful at integrating this foreign fighter um, uh, cadre and identifying what particular skills they might have. We know that they have very good uh, English media, English language media capability, as an example, but also other language media. That, that indicates that they had in place a very uh, a, a system to process uh, recruits and individuals and put them into the areas of the organization where they had the most skills. So that's uh, what we are destroying now in going after this, the, the, the caliphate and uh, ISIS at their core. But that idea that they have this uh, technological capability is, uh, is, has been one of the features that's made uh, ISIS so, so uh, such great concern. One other organization and group I wanted to touch on that I know you're very proficient in, Hezbollah. And um, at one point they were considered the quote-unquote A-team of terror organizations. Do they still hold that uh, position? Uh, but that less, less in, that's less important than what your thoughts are on where they actually are now and what their intent is based on what you know. Well, Hezbollah is an organization that we know uh, has um, an operational and then a support capability that truly is global in reach. It's an organization that, uh, of course, we've seen uh, operate uh, well outside of, of uh, Lebanon, where, of course, they are um, uh, primarily located. They have conducted attacks in many, many countries around the world, uh, and uh, that reflects that capability to insert operatives, to plan ahead, and to conduct attacks. But they also have a very sophisticated facilitation network. So this is in individuals who are fundraising on behalf of the organization, people that are um, uh, working to facilitate the organization globally. And so we are working very closely with partners around the world to illuminate and disrupt those networks wherever they may be found. But it's a challenge. It's an organization that is uh, is very sophisticated um, and, of course, enjoys, as I noted and we noted in the report, significant support from a state sponsor from Iran uh, to the tune of you know, hundreds of millions of dollars uh, that is, um, uh, makes it a, an especially dangerous organization. Mm. Um. Radicalization and recruitment is something that all of us have seen on some level, certainly within the last two to three years, play out in almost every terror attack that ISIS has been involved in. Um, there's always been somebody that, you know, walked away from home, uh, parents didn't know where they were, or someone who, as you mentioned earlier, that were part of that prison, prison system that got involved in this group, then there are people off the streets go back again to Orlando, you know, a guy who kind of pulled in a whole bunch of different things, you know, to feed his own personal uh, objectives. Um, where do you see radicalization and recruitment um, now, and what are, what are the big concerns as that relates to, uh, as, as it relates to us now? Well, I think that it's a very important point, and I, I, this is one where I think more needs to be done, uh, both at the national level and internationally, to get a better understanding of the dynamics and the factors that lead individuals either to self-radicalize and then be prepared to undertake attacks um, inspired by um, an organization, or those individuals who actually seek out and try to become recruited into a terrorist organization. 
There has been an understanding with the rise of ISIS in particular, and as we discussed earlier, the foreign terrorist fighters from over 100 countries around the world, that our counterterrorism approach, which has been uh, effective in strengthening certainly the homeland, uh, our defenses here in the United States. We have put military pressure, uh, law enforcement pressure against these groups in many, many countries around the world, yet they still have an ability to inspire and recruit thousands of people from different countries and different walks of life. That indicates that our approach really needs to be even more comprehensive. It needs to get at that. It, what are those factors? We need to have more research done in what is leading individuals to uh, aspire to join these groups? Are there factors at the local level that are driving the recruitment? Or is it a completely an, an individual thing where people simply have a lack of meaning in their lives and they're aspiring to something? In that case, we need to look at um, um, discrediting the ideology that's drawing these people in. So I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in this area. In 2016, um, uh, there was a greater attention, I would say, um, in, including um, uh, the United States. We, the State Department and USAID, put out a first-ever joint strategy on countering violent extremism, which sort of gets at some of these issues, um, and trying to um, factor this question more um, squarely into the work we do with partner governments. So on, we're certainly going to continue the work we do to build up and try to help countries develop strong intelligence, law enforcement, military capabilities to address terrorism challenges. But we want governments also to begin looking at, okay, what is it within the society here that may be leading to uh, vulnerabilities or openings for these groups to exploit? And we're encouraging governments to take that issue more seriously, and we're working with a number of them to develop their own uh, internal uh, countering violent extremism or preventing violent extremism uh, strategies. Mr. Sibrell, this is very enlightening information that you've passed on. Is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you think, or any things, feel free, that I haven't asked you about that you think are important as it relates to this? Well, no, I think we've had quite a comprehensive uh, conversation. I really appreciate the interest. I would just say, you know, we're here in the State Department, and uh, we are part of the national security community. Our role really is to strengthen and build international cooperation as it, as it applies to this particular challenge we face. And so I would just simply reiterate the importance of uh, our partnerships around the world, working closely with uh, those key partners who are really peer partners in addressing terrorism challenges, but also those countries that are you know, having real uh, difficulty uh, and helping them through our um, security assistance, our foreign assistance efforts to address uh, um, uh, the, the, the terrorism challenges uh, they face. And then finally, um, what we didn't talk about, but what is absolutely true, is that terrorists are exploiting um, um, uh, conflict. They're exploiting uh, uh, poor or even absence of governance. So we have to remember that resolving conflict and the essential work, of, you know, diplomatic work that we uh, and our government is engaged in, the President, the Secretary of State are engaged in to resolve conflict. This is really essential work. We have to continue. You can't just fight the uh, terrorism as it emerges in a place like Yemen. We have to get down in, into, the, into, the, into this conflict and help resolve the underlying conflict and help build up, again, a government capability to address these threats in the locality in which they arise. So diplomacy is an important part of what we do. Um, and I don't, it's not a peripheral part. It's an integral part to the way in which we as a country address uh, terrorism challenges. Justin Sibrell.
Acting Coordinator for Counterterrorism at the State Department's Bureau of Counterterrorism. Thank you. Well, it's been my pleasure, JJ. Thank you for the opportunity. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, it could be terrorism, anarchists, cyber criminals, intelligence, nation states, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress. Join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at TUSA Podcast. That's Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. You can also let me know what you think at jgreen at WTOP.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at Whiskey Tango Oscar Papa, jgreen at WTOP.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey, everybody. The new Podcast One app is here. There's no other podcast app like this one. Download it in the App Store or on Google Play. You can find out everything about your favorite shows. You can get more content for Target USA. You can find articles, social media, episodes. You can make playlists. There's so much you can do. It's easy to comment and connect with other show fans because we have our own little community there. That's one of my favorite parts, and I'm sure you'll like it too. You can share your favorite content and see behind-the-scenes photos, get 360 video, or watch a bunch of shows in virtual reality. So be sure to download the new Podcast One app. There are 120,000 unsolved murder cases in America. It was the next day that I found out from my parents what had happened, that my sister was killed. Each one is called a cold case. Sometimes you have to look really closely to find the evidence. Damn, I, I killed her. Damn it, I killed her. Cold Case Files, the podcast. Garcia is walking into the home of a real monster. I was nervous. I realized what kind of person I was dealing with. It's a goosebump moment. Download new episodes every Tuesday on the Podcast One app or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or podcast1.com.